you would please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 48. Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 48 today, but it's taken us three or four Sundays already, and we didn't quite get there. In Isaiah 48, multiple times God has highlighted the fact that Israel is not destroyed not because they don't deserve it, but because God has promised he's going to refine them instead of destroy them. And so we're going to be picking up in verse 12 and reading to the end of the chapter. And I think you're going to find as we look at that, God is going to highlight the fact that he is more than capable of not only refining Israel, but protecting them. So let's start in verse 12, which we covered a, a few weeks ago. It says, Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. My hand also hath laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call unto them, they stand together. All ye assemble yourselves and hear, which among them hath declared these things. The Lord hath loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yea, I have called him, I have brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. Come ye near unto me, hear ye this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. Oh, that thou hadst hearken to my commands, then had, the, <clears throat> then had thy peace been as a river, and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. Thy seed also had been as the sand, and thine offspring of thy bowels like the gravel thereof. His name should not have been cut off, nor destroyed from before him. Go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans. With a voice of singing declare ye, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth, and say ye, the Lord hath redeemed his servant Jacob. And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts, he caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He clave the rock also, and the waters gushed out. There is no peace saith the Lord unto the wicked. It's kind of an interesting passage. If you go back up to verse 12, it says, Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. And so we see who's being addressed there. It's those that are God's chosen people. And then he identifies who's speaking. He says, I am the first and I am the last. Who is that that's speaking? Come again? It's Christ. And we know that from the book of Revelation. So we can go to Revelation and say, okay, 
This is who's speaking. It's not just Jehovah, God the Father, but this is Jesus, God the Son. And then in verse 13, he says, My hand hath also laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand hath spanned the heavens. When I call them, they stand up together. And so this could easily be either God the Father or God the Son. Both participated in creation. But I think the important thing to note here is when God says, come or when God says to stand up together creation is smarter than we are it obeys we kind of tend to you know drag our feet or say well did you really mean that uh, but creation responds to its creator and we should too but we don't many times and so again he he, in verse 14, and we've been covering over and over again how God has kind of called the nations and his chosen people to a courtroom scene. And he's kind of doing this again. He says, assemble yourselves and hear among them hath, excuse me, let me read that again. Uh, All ye assemble yourselves and hear which among them hath declared these things. And he basically is saying to them, who could tell the future? Which idols? Which heathen nations? The answer is none of them. And so he's, he's doing that, and it's a little bit hard or cryptic to me as I was going through this, because he then says, the Lord hath loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon. His arm shall be on the Chaldeans. And so he's been routinely telling us that he's going to raise up Cyrus. And he actually calls him by name a few chapters before. And so in the context, he's still talking about Cyrus here. He's saying, I'm going to do my pleasure on the Chaldeans. And in verse 15, he says, I, even I have spoken, yea, I have called him, I've brought him up. He shall make his way prosperous. And so... God is telling his chosen people, you're going to be delivered. You're going to be delivered from Babylon, and it's going to be through Cyrus. And so the reference here, and it took a little bit of studying and, and kind of comparing to realize he's bringing them back to, I'm going to use Cyrus. Now for a Jewish person, that isn't an ideal thing. A Jewish person's like, wait a minute, you're going to use a Gentile to deliver us? And so that gets us to verse 16. And we had covered this before, but it's been so long ago, I thought it would be helpful to kind of just kind of zip through these verses. There's six rules of interpretation that I wrote down a little while back. The first one is the rule of logic. And I like it when plain sense of scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. 16 and 17, 16 in particular, it's kind of hard to make common sense out of it. And then there's the rule of context, grammatical, historical, literary, 
and the context of the passage that we're in. And then there's the rule of comparison, the rule of distinction, the rule of perspective. Always take a God-centered perspective. Now, I, I bring these up again because 16 has a lot of ambiguity. If you look at it, it says, Come near to me, hear ye this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. Who is I there? Okay, the last part of 16, we would say that's the Trinity because it talks about the Lord God and His Spirit has sent me. And we would say, well, the me is... Jesus. Now, part of the reason I bring this up is the commentaries don't agree on this. Okay, some believe it's Jesus, some believe it's Isaiah. And from what I have seen as I was reading some of the commentaries, they each have good reasons. There's some ambiguity in how this is written. So I use rule number six. Perspective, always take a God-centered perspective. So when I look at this passage, and if you see it different, you see Isaiah, I don't have a problem with that. Um, there's some men a lot smarter than me that take Isaiah as being the, the pronouns, and others take Jesus. But I look at this and I say, okay, the first phrase, I have not spoken in secret. When I look at the context before, it's Jesus that's speaking, the first and the last. And so I tend to say, okay, I have not spoken in secret, I believe is Jesus. And then from the time that it was, well, that's another word that gives us some ambiguity, it. What is it? Is it when Cyrus is going to rule and reign? Well, that's in the future. But the phrasing, there am I, is a phrase that we typically associate with Jehovah. You know, if you remember, Moses said, who should I say sent me? He says, I am that I am hath sent you. And so I look at this whole passage and I believe that it's talking about Jesus the Messiah throughout there. There are good men that believe it's talking about Isaiah, but to me it fits better with it being Jesus that is being spoken of. And so Last time we covered Messiah's role, first of all, he hasn't spoken in secret, and that's with my understanding of that passage. And then he was there when it all took place, both past, present, and future, so there's no issue there. Now, those that believe it's Isaiah believe when the prophecy was first made, Isaiah was there, and that's how they describe the it. Um, and so, I can understand how they would see that. Adonai Jehovah and his spirit has sent me. 
And again, I believe it's talking about Jesus, Messiah. And that makes sense because when you get to verse 17, what you find is Jehovah, Redeemer, and Holy One of Israel, which I believe are all references to Messiah. Why would I say that? Okay. In God's plan, it requires a man to represent mankind, not just deity. And so when it talks about thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I believe it's referring to Jesus, not to God the Father. And so he says, Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. You find anything unusual about verse 17? John? Okay. Yeah, I don't know that I can answer that question of how they explain it, but I agree with John that we get to see the Trinity right here. But verse 17 brings up some other interesting points, but go ahead, Linda. Yeah, I use the regular King James version. Um, the New King James tries to make the vocabulary a little easier for us today to understand. It's close, but it will have some wording differences. Yeah, Roxanne. Is it the original language for the Lord thy God? I am the Lord thy God, and how that was. Well, the Lord thy God is Adonai Jehovah. And so that's the word Lord, which means master. And Jehovah is the you know, more formal name or Yahweh for, for God the Father, usually. You see, I didn't, I, I didn't know the difference in those yet. Yeah. Uh, but that was confusing me, too, because mine doesn't say Jehovah. Okay. Yeah, mine says Lord God, which is how I read it, but I'm highlighting the fact that if you go to a Strong's Concordance or, or any other reference, it'll highlight what the real Hebrew name behind that is, which is Yahweh, the Greek version is Jehovah. Yahweh equals Jehovah, it's just two different languages. So, are you confused yet? Well, <laughs> Okay. Yeah, it does get a little bit confusing. And in verse 17, it says, Thus saith the Lord, so that's God's deity, thy Redeemer, that's his humanity, 
the Holy One of Israel. Do you find it odd or, or interesting that Redeemer and Holy One of Israel are in the same verse? Oh yes, definitely. God is the ultimate source of being. Yep. Yep. But notice, if someone is a holy one, what is going to be their focus? Okay, I think Roxanne's kind of following down the trail. If you think about the time when Isaiah was commissioned in Isaiah chapter 6, the heavenly beings were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When you think of holiness, what do you think of? Perfection. Righteousness. Okay, and for God to be holy and righteous... What does that mean he's going to do concerning sin? He's going to judge it. What does the Redeemer do? He does the opposite. We have two opposites in one verse here. If you have uh, your Bible handy, turn over to Psalm 85. Psalm 85, I think, captures... Some of this, pardon me? Why can't they just do both? Well, God does, which is kind of neat, because if you think about it, his righteousness has to be satisfied. And at the same time, he shows us mercy. How does he do it? He does it by imputation. He takes our sin, and he puts it on his son, and he takes his righteousness and puts it on us. And so both righteousness and holiness, as well as mercy and redemption, are all tied together in Jesus, in the Messiah. But it, if you look at at first glance, you say, well, these are opposites. How can the same person have both of these? And only through what God has done do we see that. In Psalm 85, says, Lord, thou hast been favorable unto the land, thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin, Shelah. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what, the, what, what God the Lord will speak, 
for he will speak peace unto his people and to all his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may, be, may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from the heaven. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. And in particular, I want us to look at verse 10. Mercy and peace, they kind of go together. When God shows you and I mercy, we have peace with God. Truth and righteousness tend to go together. And I find it interesting the way the psalmist describes this. He says they've kissed each other. They've come together. They've met together, even though they seem to be on opposite ends of the spectrum. When we expect mercy or we desire mercy, then there's a peace that we have. But if we focus on truth and righteousness, then we think of God's judgment. And the two are satisfied in Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I go through Isaiah and he identifies in verse 17 of chapter 48, he says, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. In effect, in one verse, he's just brought mercy and peace together with truth and righteousness. So he's highlighted to them that he's the Holy One of Israel, but he's also the Redeemer. So their hope of mercy is wrapped up in the same person. And, and we know from the New Testament, who's ultimately going to judge this world? Christ is going to do that. The Father has given judgment over to the Son. And so... Verse 17, we see the Redeemer and the Holy One. He says, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, and which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. And so what we see here is the fact that Messiah is going to teach them for their benefit, and he's also going to lead them in the way they should go. Verse 18 is a little bit of a transition. What we see there is the benefits of obedience. And so we've seen Jehovah as being Redeemer as well as the Holy One of Israel. And he is also going to be teaching Israel as well as leading them and guide them in the way they should go. Verses 18 and 19 
highlight the benefits of obedience. What are the benefits that Israel's going to have when they obey God? Okay. Well-being, I would call that peace. Peace like a river. Okay, not like an ocean that's stirred up by a hurricane, but, you know, like a smooth, gentle river. What else? Okay, they're not going to be destroyed. There's a couple before that, but Roxanne's right. They're not going to be destroyed. Okay, there's righteousness as the waves of the sea. What else? Say that again? Okay, they're going to have descendants. And so they're going to have offspring, multiple offspring. Um, there's something about having kids and grandkids that warms our heart. Yep, he, was to, he told Abraham. And the truth is, had they been obedient, they would probably even have more offspring. Yes, ma'am. Right. God told him, make sure you tell these people, if they do this, what will happen to them? If they do that, what will happen to them? They will show them the, what their obedience will, will bring, what their disobedience will bring. Yeah. Give so, them a good lecture. Good. Yeah. yeah, Bernadette brings up the fact when Moses was not going to go with them into the promised land because of his disobedience, he gave them both a blessing and a curse. And part of the blessing was descendants, part of the same thing that's mentioned here. And so, if they had been obedient, they would have received the blessing that Moses told them. The truth of the matter is, is they weren't. And by the way, I always like to remind us, we wouldn't either. If we were in their shoes, we would act pretty similar to them because we're all made out of the same stuff. And so many would not have been cut off or destroyed had they been obedient. And they would have been like the sand of the sea and the promises that were made to Abraham and then through Moses, those will have been fulfilled earlier. As it turns out, they'll be fulfilled later. Verse 20 talks about how they should leave Babylon. In fact, the first command there is to leave Babylon. It says, go ye forth of Babylon, flee ye from the Chaldeans. What else does it tell us about the instructions to Israel in this passage? Okay. Singing, they're to declare how God redeemed his servant Jacob. Anything else? Say that again, please. Spread the word. Okay, so it's not to be kept silent. It's to be declared to the other nations. How is their flight from Babylon described? 
Okay. Okay. Does it bring back any memories? Okay, Egypt, Moses. It's described similar to the Exodus. Notice, he says, he led them through the deserts. He caused water to flow out of the rock for them and clave the rock also and waters gushed out. In many ways, Babylon and Egypt are a picture of being wrapped up in this world apart from God. In fact, many see a very similar picture of Egypt, the wandering in the wilderness and the promised land to be a very similar picture of what happens to us. We start out wrapped up in this world, dead in our trespasses and sin, and we need a savior just like they did to get them out of Egypt. We need a savior to save us from our sin, which is Jesus. And then once we're saved, we instantly are this amazingly mature Christian, right? I wasn't, okay. Um, we're what many might call a carnal Christian, which is represented by wandering around the wilderness, not believing God at his word. And then when we get to the promised land, that's considered more like a victorious Christian life. And that's a reasonable picture, I think, that we see through a nation that also represents and gives us an idea of how we are as people and how we respond to God. And so Israel was in bondage in both cases to Babylon as well as Egypt, and they illustrate a spiritual truth that they needed a savior, in the one case Moses, the other case Cyrus, to free them from the bondage. And we as mankind need a savior that saves us from our sin. And so, this passage ends with a very interesting verse. He's told them all about the instructions of what they're to do, that Cyrus is going to save them as far as being God's man that he calls to, to free them. But he ends the passage with this verse. There is no peace saith the Lord unto the wicked. There is no peace, saith the Lord unto the wicked. He doesn't identify who the wicked are. He just simply says, they aren't going to have peace. If we want peace in this life, as well as in the life to come, it's going to only come by trusting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. It's not going to come through pursuing the pleasures this world may have to offer. I found it kind of interesting as I thought about that verse. I felt it was important that we probably do a kind of a brief review of where we've been in Isaiah. 
And I think it'll end up where we see a contrast between this verse and another verse. The main themes of Isaiah are to describe God's international scope of salvation. It's not just for the Jewish people, but it is definitely for the Jewish people, just not exclusive to them, Jew and Gentile alike is there. It also provides us many pictures of Messiah, details of his first coming and details of his second coming. The other interesting thing about the book of Isaiah is it is one of the top 10 books quoted in the New Testament. Psalms is quoted the most in the New Testament. And right after Psalms is Isaiah. And so God gave us previews of coming attractions in the book of Isaiah. And then he has the authors of, of uh, the New Testament, many of them are quoting Isaiah. Jesus himself quoted Isaiah. Deuteronomy is next, followed by Genesis and Exodus. And I think somewhere along the line, someone asked or mentioned how many times were these quoted. I did not go and count. I went and Googled it and found someone that said, this is how many. But this I also found interesting. 90% of the New Testament's 260 chapters quote from Isaiah. We're studying a book that is amazing in its authorship, but it's also amazing in how much God uses it in the rest of the Bible to be quoted from. All but 25 of the 260 chapters in the New Testament either quote directly or indirectly from Isaiah. And they quote from 30 of Isaiah's chapters. And there's a total of 38 of Isaiah's 66 chapters that are quoted in the New Testament. So there is a, a lot of things that Isaiah God revealed to him that he wanted to then elaborate on in the future passages. Pardon me? That's why it was sent to your class. Oh, okay. I did not understand it, but now I do. All right. For some reason, I wanted to learn more about the book of Isaiah, but I didn't know why. And I told you that when I first started the class. Well, you got better memory than me. <laughs> okay. One of the things that I find helpful, though, is to go back and kind of look at the outline of a book. And so the first chapters, one through six, talk about Jehovah, the day of Jehovah and Judah. The primary arching theme is a focus on judgment due to disobedience on, of the law. And this is true, I believe, for the first 29 chapters of Isaiah. 7 through 12 talk about the day of Jehovah and Israel. 13 through 23 talk about the 10 burdens of the nations. And I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I was like, why are all these other nations being mentioned in Isaiah? And the reason is, the Jewish people 
were looking at trying to form alliances with those nations to try and fight against mainly Assyria, but then later Babylon. And God kept telling them, don't do it. Don't go down to Egypt. Don't align yourself to this nation or that nation. And the reason was when God's judgment was going to be poured out upon those nations, if Israel was aligned to them, his judgment would be poured out on Israel alongside of them. And then in verses 20, or chapters 24 through 27, we saw Messiah and the whole world. And then 28 through 33, excuse me, I said 29 earlier, it was 39. We have the woes upon Jerusalem, the final wrath, Zion is restored in 34 and 35. And then the historic addendum was Hezekiah, and we got to see him in that. We have just finished 40 through 48. And the highlight of that, the last half, or it's a little less than half, the last chapters of the book of Isaiah is broken into three groups of nine chapters. We have just finished 40 through 48. And in that, the supremacy of Jehovah, mainly God the Father, his greatness is emphasized. And over and over again, such that I was getting kind of tired of it because I don't like to focus on the idols, he would show us God's greatness and then he would say, but you're following idols. And they can't speak. They can't hear. They can't walk. They can't do anything. And yet you're following them instead of Jehovah. And so it was a challenge to the Jewish people. That chapter, chapter 48, ended with, there is no peace, saith the Lord unto the wicked. Chapter 49 through 57, I think is going to be some of the most interesting chapters. Reason, they focus on the servant of Jehovah. Not Israel as the servant, but Messiah, the servant, focuses on his grace of the Son of God. And we get to see details. In fact, I think many of you know chapter 53, the Jewish people have a problem with that one. Why? Because it describes the crucifixion in detail of what Messiah's sermon is going to go through. Interestingly enough, the very last verse of chapter 57 says, there is no peace, saith my Lord unto the wicked. One word is changed. Did, did you all pick up what that one is? Okay. At the end of chapter 48, it says the Lord. At the end of chapter 57, it says my Lord. The difference is he went from just being the Lord, the God, the one true God, to being personally their God. Oh yes, definitely. And in that passage, it's 
God the Father speaking to God the Son, but it takes a little, you know, deciphering the names in there to realize what's going on in that passage. But here, this passage, these chapters, these groups of nine, are separated by the same exact phrase with only one word difference. The Lord versus my Lord. Another way of looking at this, and then verse chapters 58 through 66 tend to emphasize the outpouring of God's Spirit upon God's people. And so those are previews of coming attractions that we'll be covering. Another way of looking at it was 40 through 48 was Israel's restoration. 49 through 57 is Israel's future redeemer. And then 58 through 66 is Israel's future redemption. I always like to go back and consider where we've been. There's some key verses and there's others. This is just five that kind of stood out to me. The first one, a sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. And then the phrase, they have forsaken the Lord, they have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger, they have gone away backward. This is how chapter 1 started, verse 4. What it reminds me of is the book of Judges has the phrase, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Deuteronomy has, and every man did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. There is a big difference. It's night and day difference. The question that we have to ask ourselves today, as we're really close to dismissing, have we forsaken God? How have we lived our life that shows that our trust is really in God? When we forsake God, or me? Yep. We're never satisfied with what we have. Our nation, sadly, has forsaken God as a, as a culture. And I think most of us see it. There was a big difference 50 years ago in what was going on in our cities and around our nation. Notice in chapter 5, verse 20, it says, Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And so what you find is as soon as we forsake God, everything starts to get turned upside down. I like the, the question that gets asked, you know, we forsook God, How's that working out for us? And the sad thing is, is we see violence on the streets. We see things that we never dreamt would happen in our nation. And it all started 
because we forsook God as a people. Doesn't mean each one of us individually, but collectively as a culture, we've done that. One of my favorite verses from Isaiah is, Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The opposite of forsaking God is trusting God. You and I today have the same question that I think God put before the Israelites. Will you trust me or will you forsake me? And so in our life, even though we may see lots of things around us that we know show that as a nation we've forsaken God, we have an individual responsibility of what about me? Am I gonna trust God or am I gonna forsake God? And I looked at the clock and we are out of time. So next week we'll finish these verses and then we'll get into chapter 49. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word that points to not only a righteous and holy Messiah, but a merciful Savior. And Father, help us as we see in the book of Isaiah, the instructions to the Israelites, help us more than that to see our Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that Christ would be exalted in the service that follows. And thank you for sending your Son to die for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.